Welcome, everybody, to episode three of the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella. And Tyler Buckingham. And uh, today we're going to talk about hurricanes in a broad way uh, and focus on a few key subjects. This is the third episode of the American Shoreline Podcast, which is the flagship show, Tyler, of the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And Peter, I think this week uh, we wanted to take a look at hurricanes, of course, with Florence in the news, it's topical, and uh, we wanted to, to give it a little time on the show. We do, and before we dive into the subjects, we want to thank our sponsors. We've got two sponsors for the show today. The American Shore and Beach Preservation Association's National Conference is coming up October 30th in Galveston, Texas. And uh, I'm sure there will be quite a bit of discussion of hurricanes at that conference. Uh, but Tyler, it's going to be a great conference down there in Galveston at the uh, Galveston Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. It, it really will. Uh, the early registration de- deadline is September 29th. Uh, I encourage everybody to get registered, pay the fee, get there. This conference is a can't-miss event for coastal policy and understanding. It is the place to go to learn about our coasts. Indeed, and uh, you can register online at asbpa.org. Uh, the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association is headed by Derek Brockbank, one of our podcast hosts. Uh, Derek is the host of the Federal Beach Show. The Capital Beach. The Capital Beach, and we're looking forward to, to hearing from Derek soon. Listen, this conference has uh, poster events, covers every topic uh, under the beach sun, and uh, we hope to see you there. We will be broadcasting live from the event, conducting at least three podcasts, hoping to interview many of you who will be in attendance and seeing you all there. We will have a booth. Uh, just can't wait for the, sh- for the conference. Right, and so if you're at the conference, come by the Coastal News Today ASPN booth. We'd love to meet you, and uh, we'll look forward to more than 200 presentations at the conference. It's a great show, great place to learn, and uh, please join us in Galveston October 30th through November 2nd. Galveston Island Convention Center. Register at asbpa.org. Beautiful Galveston. Beautiful Galveston. And I also want to thank our other sponsor, Dune Doctors. Uh, Dune Doctors is a great beach uh, dune restoration company in Pensacola, Florida, longtime friends of the show. Uh, the company is headed by Frederique Perret. She's a real professional. If you are a condominium owner or a homeowner in the Panhandle in Florida or anywhere in Florida, in fact, from or, Texas to Florida, from Texas to Florida, Dune Doctors is a great company. We'd invite you to check out their website at dunedoctors.com. And give Frederic Perret a call the next time you're looking at restoring the dunes in front of your property. Dune Doctors is a great provider, very reputable, been around since uh, I think about 2000. And uh, we encourage you to look at Dune Doctors next time you're in the market for dune restoration work on your property. Absolutely. Thank you, Dune Doctors, and everybody check them out. Uh, so today we're going to talk about hurricanes, uh, and I think the, the unavoidable fact is when a major hurricane strikes the American shoreline, everything gets affected. And when we were uh, sitting back talking this morning about uh, what we wanted to chat about on the podcast, we just, we just knew that we had to cover 
some of what we've been observing and thinking about uh, as Florence has been ramping up the coverage. And of course, one of the things we wanted to spend a minute on is just how uh, the media has been covering this. Right, Peter? Yeah, I think, you know, when we all are captivated by the satellite imagery as these hurricanes form off of uh, the African coast and move across the Atlantic into the Caribbean basin and onto the American shoreline, we all watched them form. And Hurricane Florence was a menacing storm uh, reaching Category 4 level temporarily. Uh, obviously, when it makes landfall, it's a Category 1 storm. And, and I think for a lot of people in the public, uh, it's hard to understand or maybe hard to decipher how to respond to these storms as they form because we know there's almost wall-to-wall coverage in every uh, cable news channel. And uh, there's a real fear that these storms are are going to cause massive damage. And the question I always have is whether the media is serving the public well in how these storms are covered as they come across the uh, Atlantic onto the American shoreline. And of course, there's no doubt, Peter, that, that the coverage is sensationalized. I mean, we know that CNN is in the business of, of selling advertisements, and we know that uh, when you have such a compelling, uh, impending disaster that uh, there's a certain way that that they are covered. But one of the interesting things is how over recent years, uh, the coverage of hurricanes has become somewhat politicized and kind of draped in the broader discussion of climate change and what those causes are. And uh, I'll tell you, I was monitoring uh, social media over the weekend, and it's interesting to see how even before the storm in, in certain conservative quadrants, there are stories about how the media is over sensationalizing the storm and and on the progressive side it's it's look at look at here's the real manifestation of climate change right and like everything in american politics today and in public policy uh we're polarized in this discussion as well uh there's and and really this is where the the quality of, of coverage in the mainstream media is really important. Uh, when they sen- when storms are sensationalized, it opens uh, it opens up a lot of criticism about whether this is being accurately depicted or is someone trying to make a point that climate change is driving storms. Uh, here's what I know: hurricanes don't care what we think about them or how we describe them. They are physical events. They have a certain power. They're going to move in a certain way. They're going to have certain impacts. And the storms don't care about the politics, but as policymakers at the federal, state, and local level, the politics of storms is really an important consideration. And how those storms are understood uh, really makes a difference in what happens in the response both after the hurricane hits, of course, but leading into these storms, are we putting in place good sound public policy to to address hurricane risk and that's you know i think peter one of the things that i was lamenting um when we were putting together our show notes is uh by this point there's this footage of a weather channel reporter that has gone viral and uh another still image of anderson cooper of cnn uh that have gone viral in both cases it appears at least and and the the angle of the of these viral stories is that uh, these are examples where the Weather Channel and CNN were 
over uh, sensationalizing and actually uh, maybe dishonestly representing what was actually happening. In the case of the Weather Channel reporter, it's comical. I mean, there's people calmly strolling across the street as he's pretending to be thrashed by the winds. And uh, that really weakens, uh, I think, the fidelity that the broader American uh, viewer or citizen would have in this coverage. And that's unfortunate because these are, hmm. this is an important uh, aspect of the American shoreline. Um, the American shoreline is a, is a border place where the oceans meet the land. And it's where these storms interface with us land dwellers. And uh, as we will discuss later on in this show, uh, this is an incredibly complex and dynamic world of local, state, and federal policies. Uh, so it's a shame when we see this kind of uh, right. weak coverage. Yeah, I think it hurts. I think it, it undermines public confidence when the storms are sensationalized or the impacts are, are not fairly reported. But that's not what we're going to do today. What we're going to do today is not, is not look at uh, sort of the sensational aspects of the storm, but really want to zero in on a couple of key topics and start to look at some of the policy implications of, of uh, federal, state, and local uh, disaster recovery. And there's three topic areas we want to touch on today, Tyler. Yeah, I mean, I think we want to begin with talking about some of the, the ways that the real estate sector, the coastal real estate sector, is impacted by these storms. Um, we're also, as, as we alluded to moments ago, uh, we want to talk about local government, uh, how local governments regulate coastal development. Uh, they have a tremendous responsibility there, and of course, uh, their eye is often on uh, preserving the shoreline, which uh, has tremendous economic value to those communities. And then we want to talk about the, the role that the federal government has. Yeah. Uh, well, on on real estate, let's talk about coastal real estate, and and I think. Uh, this is something that I hear often in, in working on the American shoreline, especially from people who are uh, on the inland side of the discussion. There is a sense that it's just crazy to occupy and build on the shoreline. I often hear people tell me, you know, we just need to get off the coast or we need to get off of barrier islands. And these storms uh, are the uh, evidence, uh, number one, that, that is presented, that the risks are too high, the costs are too high, and what we need to do is, is vacate and retreat from the shoreline. Um, in my 25 years of working in uh, coastal communities, I have really never seen a massive retreat uh, program put in place. Uh, it, is, it seems like an obvious thing to do. Um, but here's one of the peculiar things about hurricanes and how it affects the real estate market. Typically speaking, and there are a number of studies that have examined this question, but if you think about what, what a storm might do or what, a rational, what you think might be a rational response to this risk, uh, when areas are hit by hurricanes, you would think that the value of the property impacted would go down. But in fact, several studies have examined this particular question and found that after a storm, the cost of real estate generally goes up. And so the, the risks, although it is absolutely evident and clear, does not dissuade people from reoccupying the land and actually putting more value on the shoreline 
and increasing the risks both to themselves but also to the public purse. Of course, and, and what's really interesting about that, Peter, is that when the prices go up, this ends up transforming the coastal communities themselves. So uh, one of the things that we like to think about uh, is the, the, what, what the composition of an American shoreline community is. Who's living there? How are these economies structured? And what we're seeing is when a major storm rolls in and then creates damage and then property values go up, oftentimes the residents who might have lived there previously get priced out, the costs go up, and wealthier uh, owners move in. It's, for, it's true. The Insurance Journal uh, is a uh, magazine that covers the American insurance market. Great article by Christopher Flavel in April of 2018, Why Coastal Living is Becoming Affordable for Only the Rich. And what the analysis that uh, Christopher Flavel conducted showed that the results of storms often dislocate lower income Americans off of the shoreline and make the land available to wealthier uh, folks who can afford to uh, take uh, to take these properties that are high risk, um, it is a confluence of, of factors that drive the gentrification of the shoreline. Storms are a transformative event, and the public think about the public policy implications of of increasing building codes or requiring flood insurance. Uh, those kinds of Compliance costs, better building codes, increase the cost of construction, shoreline management programs like we've often worked on to restore beaches and dune systems result in the imposition of new local taxes and, and the cost of compliance on the shoreline, the insurance costs, and then storm recovery costs at the local level all drive up the cost of owning property along the shoreline. And oddly, we end up with more value often at risk as a result of hurricanes. And we don't see a vac people vacating the shoreline. What we see is a transformation of communities from generally maybe historic working class access to the shoreline to higher priced properties, which of course results in a greater financial risk to the public. It's interesting to note as well that uh, over the past 50 years, the population uh, in coastal areas along the Gulf Coast, along the kind of hurricane alley of the United States, has gone up dramatically. And uh, those are trends that are not slowing down. Uh, the Gulf Coast, uh, even areas that were impacted here, the Carolina Coast impacted by Florence, these are areas that 50 years ago looked very different than the way they look today. Uh, 50 years ago, these areas were much more sparsely populated. Uh, the road and bridge infrastructure out to these communities was uh, much smaller, designed to uh, have, have uh, few, less use, fewer people were out there. Um, over that period of time, uh, and this is hard for people to see, uh, it's, it's difficult to keep an eye on these things, but the, the U.S. Census has, and it's very clear that the coastal populations are climbing rapidly, faster, in fact, than, than our national population. And the, and the quality of the construction is changing. We're seeing larger structures. Uh, and this, this is also driven in part by, by the short-term rental market and the emergence of Airbnb and HomeAway. And, um, and, and folks are building bigger structures and putting more property at risk uh, 
there are places on the North Carolina shoreline where they're building houses with 10 rooms and they're effectively uh, small hotels, even though they take the form of houses. Uh, we're seeing greater density, greater value on the shoreline, increased population. And this at a time when hurricanes are much, much more in the news, the frequency of storms appears to be increasing, the strength of storms appears to be uh, increasing. Uh, in other words, we're not dissuaded Americans are not dissuaded from owning at-risk property on the shoreline, and uh, it's going to continue to present a significant policy and financial uh, quagmire uh, at the federal, state, and local level. Absolutely, and of course, uh, the, the last thing I, I would want to say on that is I think that it's important to consider when we talk about the economic transformation of these communities what that does to, and I'm, we'll, we'll get to this when we talk about local politics in a minute, but uh, what's interesting is when you have a community shift from full-time residents in uh, small neighborhoods and that trans transformation changes the community into larger uh, short-term rental communities where there are very few full-time residents, uh, the, the, the electorate shifts, voter preference changes. Right. And also the people uh, who reside on the shoreline might view the relationship with the beach the relationship with the ecosystem differently, the environment differently than they would if they're effectively operating a business. You know, and it's it's just odd. Forbes did a great story in June of this year. Uh, it was uh, done by Jordan Lulick. And does hurricane damage negatively impact your real estate value? Forbes has done a study. The uh, the Dallas Federal Reserve has done studies. There have been a number of people who have looked at post-storm real estate markets after hurricanes. And the surprising outcome is that hurricanes actually cause an increase in housing market prices. Um, typically, according to the Forbes study, the Forbes analysis, uh, about three to four percent increase over and above what the market would normally uh, generate in terms of real estate value improvement, uh, because I think what happens is is lesser housing stock gets eliminated, uh, we get new construction, uh, and and we have increases in in uh, well improvements in infrastructure to respond to storms. All of that, of course, driving up real estate values and. In one analysis that uh, Hurricane Harvey, uh, the analysis of Hurricane Harvey's impact on Houston showed that there was a 31% increase in residential home prices in areas impacted by the storm. And it's counterintuitive, and I think this is what we want our listeners to, to think through a little bit, is hurricanes are transformative economic events, and they do not have what you would think would be the sort of the basic response, which is that we're going to quit doing risky things along the American shoreline. It's actually uh, the opposite. No. As we, as we say, zooming it way out, we are drawn to the edge and all of the complexities and risks associated with it. Indeed. And so I think what it does is when, if you understand that, that hurricanes do not dissuade Americans from occupying the shoreline. It doesn't mean that we're going to put less uh, property at risk. In fact, there's, a, there's an, a good argument that it increases. It really puts a premium on local governments to manage mm -hmm. shoreline construction. And I think that's the second topic we want to talk about today is 
the challenges local governments face when they're trying to regulate shorefront construction and trying to limit the risks that uh, that Americans take, uh, because those risks are public risks. And uh, we've been in and around this issue quite a bit, Tyler. It's a big deal. Yeah, we have. The, the local government folks have really got a challenge when they're trying to manage shorefront construction. They do. I mean, this is, uh, of course, where the rubber meets the road. This is the grassroots level of coastal governance. And in areas where uh, storm activity and hurricane activity are uh, a part of life, local governments have are forced to uh, produce building setbacks and building codes that uh, indemnify in some respects or, or certainly reduce the risk to uh, the local government entity. Um, and we are professionally, we have gotten in there and gotten our hands dirty on actually how to uh, politically manage this. As you can imagine, not everybody sees this the same way. And oftentimes coastal communities uh, have a beachfront area and they have an off beach area. They might have a bayside area. Uh, and of course, believe me, uh, those different constituent groups want very different things when it comes to paying for and planning for these uh, types of risks. Yep. Uh, I think one of the things that's going to be interesting about Michael Poff show, Michael Poff is the president of Coastal Engineering Consultants, great engineer that we've worked with over the years. He's going to be hosting a podcast on ASPN uh, called Podcast for Building Better Beaches, Beef. It's P four B cubed. I love this show. I'm looking forward to hearing from Michael. But once you observe that storms are not going to drive people off the American shoreline, uh, local governments and state governments begin to work together to try to uh, reduce the risk. And one of the key ways they do that is through beach restoration projects and dune reconstruction and beach nourishment. Uh, Michael Poff is going to cover the very technical uh, engineering and design issues that go into those kinds of projects. So I'm looking forward to hearing Michael's perspective on that topic. Um, we, of course, in our work over the years have, have helped underwrite and finance those programs. Uh, we just finished a major local funding initiative for Charlotte County, North Carolina, just a bit south of, uh, of Naples. Uh, and Florida. Yes, and we, we, we put a lot of we put a lot of effort about a year into f sorting out how to bring together the local financial resources for the dune restoration and shoreline management program for Charlotte County, and the politics of those uh, funding strategies is very complex. And I think, as you mentioned, the communities of interest along the shoreline are very distinct. There is the highest risk folks immediately on the shoreline or on the second row of a barrier island. There's the off-beach uh, off community on the island, and then there's the mainland area. And this would be, of course, what we, we encountered in Charlotte County. And the folks on the, on the inland part of the county typically are not too uh, uh, sympathetic to the risks that, that, shore, that beachfront uh, property owners are taking. They think, well, if you want to take the risk, you should pay the bill. But the reality is that the beachfront economy drives in, in, for example, in Charlotte County, is a main driver of the economy of the whole county. Uh, James Houston's article 
in American Short and Beach Magazine, the ASBPA publication we talked about in the first show, demonstrates the economic power of a tourism-based beachfront economy. And although we might wish that these uh, folks would just go at it alone, and if something bad happens, we're just going to let them suffer, uh, the fact is that the entire community suffers and the entire economy of a region can be seriously undermined if good beach management practices are not implemented. And that process of educating the public uh, to that fact, and of course, you know, it's interesting because when we get into these communities, very oftentimes uh, we, we have to, I don't want to say we have to convince people, they know, they, they absolutely know uh, in, for example, Charlotte County, that the, whole, the broader county economy and economic uh, volatility of the entire region is really predicated on their beautiful beaches and waterways. I mean, it is, yeah. it is the, when you, the, the Tourism Bureau, the, they tout the beach. It's the headline of the, right. of the region. Uh, so they know that there's going to need to be uh, some sort of management strategy involved. Right. There's a vested interest among everyone. The problem, of course, is who pays and how much. Right. Yeah, I think uh, that's the dilemma. And I think if you're willing to, to dip below the headlines and the sensationalized coverage of hurricanes and, and shorefront areas and look closer, what you'll see is a powerful economic engine of, of coastal tourism. Uh, again, the James Houston article is a stunning statistical analysis of the economic power of, of beach-related tourism. Um, so you've got this driver, this economic driver, and a market that is not dissuaded by risk. Uh, property values go up after storms. But then it puts the local government into this very difficult position of trying to foster that economy, but doing it in a way that is less risky. And we've had some experience in working through that process uh, and I, not going to go into terribly uh, in-depth detail here, but we'll have to do a special show. We right? should we should do a special show on shorefront construction standards. But typically speaking, what local governments are trying to do is require structures to be further back from the beach. That's setback standards are are uh, a, a principal way of managing risk, and. We worked very hard in Cameron County, Texas, down on the very south, uh, the southernmost county of, uh, uh, of Texas, down on the Mexican border. Cameron County is the home of Brownsville. It is the home of the city of South Padraig Island, and we've been working with them for about five years. Uh, there's a lot to think about in the future of South Padraig Island. The county is responsible for about... 18 miles of shoreline on this barrier island that is one of the largest privately owned undeveloped strips of I, land I, for, on a barrier island. For, for, for those listeners who are not familiar with this area, Peter, why don't you, uh, it, it really is a spectacular place. Uh, at the southern end of the island, of course, is the city of South Padre Island, which is a, a urban uh, beach town. Yeah. Um, and then as you go north, uh, there is no development, and uh, it is undeveloped but privately owned. Fascinating, beautiful spot. You can drive, of course. The there's no road out there, so uh, the way you explore that that part of the island is to uh, drive up the undeveloped 
area uh, on the beach, and it is stunningly beautiful. It and is. the erosion rate is crazy. It is. So this is a good example. Uh, we, we were retained uh, by Cameron County to develop what's called the Erosion Response Plan. Uh, the state of Texas mandates that coastal communities adopt an erosion response plan. The purpose of those plans is to do exactly what we're talking about. How do you account allow for the economics of the shoreline to exist, but in a way that is less risky to the public purse? Uh, we spent about a year developing a land use basically land use standards along the undeveloped portion of uh, South Padre Island, north of the city. And as Tyler said, there's a, there's a road that goes up the barrier island. It's six miles long, and it just stops. And the, it, it just reaches an endpoint on the barrier island. And north of that road end is another 10 miles of pristine barrier island land. Some of, There are some public inholdings in there. But by and large, it is platted for development and has been since the 70s. And, um, and these plats, I mean, when you look at the map of these plats, it's shocking because half of them, it seems, are now submerged. Well, there, it is interesting to look at the land plats on South Padre Island north of the city of South Padre. And, and Tyler's right. What you'll find is the plats that were laid out for development on the barrier island were adopted in the 70s and the 80s. They assumed a certain position of the barrier island. We, in the analysis we did for Cameron County, I want to say about 450 acres of land has, uh, is, has been lost to erosion. The erosion rate on this shoreline is greater than 10 feet per year on average. And when you think about the risks of new development on that, on that shoreline, it's Massive, And I'm thinking really in terms of the public expenditures that would be required to hold the position of a barrier island were it to be developed. But even though the risks are clear and obvious and documented, even though the plats are there and you can look at platted lots that are underneath the Gulf of Mexico and say, gee whiz, not a great place to build, obviously going to be very difficult to sustain the position of the shoreline at that erosion rate, in spite of those obvious facts. The politics of implementing construction setback standards and other construction standards on that shoreline were incredibly fraught with difficulty. There is a, and this is the dilemma local governments face, they know that their economic future is tied to the shoreline, they know that there are powerful economic interests that want to occupy the shoreline, and yet they can see the risks that that development would pose both to obviously property and life, but also the fiscal and financial risks that the community is taking if they let it go forward. And let me tell you, it is very difficult to restrict shorefront development, even where the facts are obvious. That's been my experience on the shore. And, you know, the other interesting thing about Cameron County is we, we were talking earlier about the dynamic between the inland area and the shorefront area. Right. And one of the fascinating things about Cameron County is that this is a predominantly Latino county, uh, is on the border with Mexico, um, and uh, the ownership uh, area of the coastline tends to be wealthier, it tends to be whiter, Yeah. Um, and uh, of course the voting public, the vast majority of voters, are inland and are not they're not property not owners. share those interests. Right. So uh, there's a political dynamic here that's very difficult. 
And, you know, if you're, if you're looking at it from the county's perspective, of course, there, there are concerns about risk to property and life. Uh, and there are, of course, I think if you have any imagination, you could see how uh, developing that shoreline could have a detrimental effect, in fact, to the tourism demand. It, it, that region has been shifting to a more ecotourism uh, uh, identity. Uh, South Padre Island, the city and that region for a long time was kind of a spring break yeah. uh, zone, but over the past 10 years or so, there has been a shift away from that and more toward ecotourism and valuing the the environment there, which is uh, has been proven to be great. The property value has been going up. There's a great tourism economy. They're doing a great job of it down there. Uh, but you could see how if you develop that shoreline and all of a sudden it's erosive and you lose that beach and it's no longer, that, that could damage that identity as well. For sure. Uh, if you restrict development, of course, you would take that property value off of the tax roll and that's something that needs to be calculated as well. So it's in, in that particular county, I think it's fair to say, Peter, that uh, it's, 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 a, it's, they're in a, it's a hard way, it's a hard place for them to make a, a firm decision and think that far ahead. It is, and I, I think this is one of the key topics that I'm going to be focusing on on, on my podcast, uh, the Sandy Gavel, which is going to be the local government podcast on ASPN. And what we want to explore there is how different communities along the American shoreline try to tackle this challenge of responsibly developing their shoreline areas and but doing so in a way that isn't detrimental to the long-term fiscal health of the communities and it's just a very difficult uh equation i think there are a variety of approaches around the country and on on the sandy gavel we're looking forward to talking to barrier island mayors and and county officials and others about how they tackle this tension between the desire for a tourism-based economy but the substantial risks that are created as a result uh, of these of, of storm threats and erosion. Yeah, so we've got two awesome shows coming up. We've got Michael Pop's show, podcast for Building Better Beaches, um, and we have Peter's show, The Sandy Gavel. Uh, we'll cover these. These areas are super interconnected. Um, obviously, uh, Michael Pop will design uh, the project. He will advise a local government uh, as to how to best tackle that. But as you often say, Peter, uh, a design consideration is the budget. It's the local politics. So right. uh, I, I think that we need to get Michael on this show soon and we got to uh, introduce him to you all and uh, kind yeah. of kick this conversation off because it's, it's one that exists across the entire American shoreline. Uh, how do you manage these spaces from an engineering perspective? What's the cost going to be? I mean, goodness, we, uh, we were in California uh, talking with our good friend Brian Brennan of the Beacon Organization in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. Uh, they have a project list about 15 projects long, but they don't have the budget. They have no taxing authority. Right. So they're writing grants. You know, they're hoping to fund some of the stuff. But these projects tend to be expensive. When we're talking about a beach management program that involves uh, renourishment, pumping sand, there's the sourcing of the sand. Uh, how much stock do you have? Where are you getting it from? How far away is it? These all drive costs. Uh, this is not uh, an inexpensive undertaking for a local government. It's not. And, and the, the thing to keep in mind, and I, I think a lot of our professionals out there who are coastal practitioners understand this and know very well, 
the role that FEMA plays in shoreline management. FEMA, what FEMA does for local governments that decide to invest in beach restoration projects, and for example, in uh, on Minnesota Key in Charlotte County, I think the initial project cost was $23 million. The county is splitting that with the state, but the local taxpayers with new special tax districts are going to be funding these projects. And everyone in that conversation understands that that uh, putting 800,000 cubic yards of sand on the shoreline one time is not going to solve the problem. That shoreline management programs are ongoing. And as we often said Mm -hmm. to the people in the room when we were putting together the funding strategy, uh, is that the funding strategy has to be as persistent as the waves. It has to be recurrent and long-term. Beaches, beach management is a very expensive proposition, and FEMA plays a critical role. If a hurricane hits these beaches after they are rebuilt, the federal government will essentially ensure the investment. There are, there are several uh, standards that govern uh, how much the eligibility of the community for recovery funds. But basically, FEMA will pay 75% of the cost of restoring a beach after a hurricane. So every time we move forward with development along the shoreline, every time we allow more uh, value to be placed there, it puts a premium on shoreline management, high dollar cost, and it, puts it, and it implicates the federal budget through the FEMA cost recovery program. And, uh, you know, the, the die has been cast, as we've said. The, the, the trends are that the coastline is being developed. People are moving there. Uh, real estate values are going up. Demand is increasing. Uh, the die has been cast. Now, uh, of course, there are certain circumstances where a retreat strategy, and I'm, we're actually fascinated by this, and uh, we look very much forward to kind of discussing where these options work. But... At the local government level, that is the, this is where these issues are coming to fruition from a governance perspective. And uh, the, the awesome thing about local government is that it can be responsive to the local dynamics, the local politics. Every community does have a unique set of, a unique identity. Uh, mm-hmm. if, is it a spring break town? Is it an ecotourism town? Is it an old town? Is it a retirement town? Is it Miami? Right. You know, these, these are all, dip, you've got to manage accordingly. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's important when we're talking about storm resiliency and, and the impacts of these storms, it's important to remember that the local governments will be ingesting all of the political angst and all of the, uh, the, the work will be done on the ground at that level. And it's something that we are fascinated by and, and look forward to covering. And I, Peter, I look forward to the yeah. the Sandy Gavel. The Sandy Gavel. Fantastic. <laughs> the local government podcast on ASPN. We'll be prepare, uh, premiering that in October. Uh, really looking forward to conversations with, with coastal local government leaders all around the United States from the variety of perspectives that are out there. And as you say, there's urban uh, coastal governments. There are barrier island and small communities. Uh, There's just such a variety of uh, challenges along the American shoreline. And uh, like I say, the local governments have to grapple with that. And uh, I think there's a lot to learn by exploring how local governments respond to the challenges. And that's that's going to be the topic of the Sandy Gap. Well, well, 
Okay, so let's let's look at the let's go to the other spectrum of our government. Let's look at the federal government for a little bit. Yeah, uh, Peter, let's what what are what are your thoughts on federal action vis-a-vis these major storms like Florence? Well, I think uh, you know Congress last week just passed uh, the Water Resources Development Act uh, reauthorization. Billions of dollars in federal investment are going to the American shoreline. Uh, it's a the, the federal role is is deeply ingrained in coast in in the American shoreline. Uh, of course, the feds have a, a couple of broad roles. One is water resources projects, which include shoreline management and beach restoration, is 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 a huge category. But federal shipping channels and the maintenance of deep water ports around the United States, which are massive economic drivers all around the American shoreline, is a federal responsibility. And then you get the federal government coming in in hurricane recovery. And you start looking at what are the cost implications of, of, of these programs, and they're massive. Uh, in the last 10 years, uh, we've spent built hundreds of billions of dollars as a result of hurricanes. Uh, we'll see what the cost of Florence is going to be, but there's a couple of that jump out at me when I start looking at the list of uh, federal storm recovery costs. Well, I mean, just looking at it, last year, 2017, we had three tremendously expensive storms. Maria, 31 billion. Harvey, 30 billion. Irma, 30 billion. Uh, that's that's not a small bill. No, and and I think if we tabulated all of the costs of these hurricane events, uh, so last year were about a hundred billion dollars in direct federal uh, post storm recovery costs from Maria, Harvey, and Irma alone. Back in two thousand and five, of course, we all know about Katrina. The published numbers are around fifty billion dollars, but the larger economic cost of that of these storms are much greater than even these numbers and. Uh, again, I think we, what we find ourselves in as coastal professionals and coastal practitioners is in this universe where we are going to continue to face this problem. We know that the, that the population dynamics are forcing people to the shoreline. We know that the value of investment on the shoreline is increasing in spite of the risks. And we have in place programs that are going to have to pay out as a result of these known risks. And uh, I think it's a it's a difficult it's a tough thing for anybody who's trying to put together federal program budgets have got to know that they're you know when I saw Florence spinning out in the Atlantic as a category three storm I thought well that's about a 10 billion dollar spin right there that storm circulating is a budget item and that was and we'll see what the cost of Hurricane Florence is is, but it's these things arise and and come across uh, the desks of folks at the federal state and local level uh, in the governing sector, and they're very big, and I don't see any clear way out of the dilemma. Uh, we're going to keep spending this money. Hopefully, uh, our policies can evolve to a point where the risks are are, are reduced more, but uh, it's hard to do, and we haven't mastered it yet. We haven't mastered it yet, but I, I, I do want to speak quickly about one of the criticisms that we that I have seen recently, uh, just in looking at uh, the news stories that have bubbled up uh, since Florence made landfall, um, there across the Upper Midwest, uh, local papers are writing stories about how uh, 
the federal government is uh, subsidizing, providing a subsidy to coastal communities. And I totally get why that is a, a fun uh, and compelling story uh, in those regions. Hey, why are my tax dollars going out to the beach houses? Right. But, I, you know, Peter, one of the things we talk about is that it's just not that simple. Uh, they, these, uh, as Houston writes, uh, these projects produce tremendous economic returns in promoting tourism, promoting, in some cases, storm resiliency that will uh, mm-hmm. keep these costs lower for future events, uh, pro- you know, mitigate damages. Uh, if we invest in a shoreline, we expect to see a return on that investment. And generally speaking, we get more out of it than we put in. Yeah, I think it's true. I think that the facts are, and this is both in terms of the argument for federal investment in shoreline management and risk reduction and against, but a couple of things that jump out. It is true. The the folks who criticize the National Flood Insurance Program uh, argue that the premiums charged in the federal flood insurance program do not cover uh, the costs of, of, of recovery. In other words, the taxpayers are subsidizing the federal flood insurance program. And it's true. And and, uh, the the Congressional Budget Office report of September 2017, the National Flood Insurance Program analysis, is it financially sound and affordable, concluded that the National Flood Insurance Program shortfall is about $1.4 billion a year in terms of the premiums collected and and the and the payouts under the program. It's clearly not sustaining on a premium basis. That's a part of the foundation of the criticism of the federal uh, participation in the shoreline. We are underwriting, subsidizing uh, risky development along the shoreline. The flip side of that is to look at James Houston's article in Shore and Beach Magazine that documents that the net return on the investment of sound shoreline management practices. The fact of the matter is, state and federal and local tax tax revenues substantially increase with well-managed beaches. So is it a subsidy? I mean, if you look at it strictly as a premium-based analysis of the National Flood Insurance Program, you can argue, look, this thing isn't paying for itself. But if you look at the broader economics of the American shoreline, you'll see that the value of, uh, of, of shoreline tourism and shoreline property ownership drives and supports uh, local, state, and federal budgets all around the country. Now, Peter, uh, for just to kind of as to provide a little broad overview here, uh, the federal government's role on the American shoreline is, of course, vast. Uh, yeah. Uh, from the mil- you know, military, Coast Guard, Border Patrol, and then the Army Corps of Engineers, shoreline protection projects, uh, the federal uh, shoreline spending, which just was authorized, I understand, uh, FEMA spending. Now, let's let's just really quickly talk about how uh, the difference between the National Flood Insurance Program uh, and their responsibilities to coastal property owners and, and coastal property owners' responsibilities to that and also FEMA. Yeah, they're, they're really different categories of spending. And uh the good news is we've got a couple of experts on federal shoreline policy on ASPN. Uh, of course, we've mentioned Derek Brockbank's show. Derek showed the Capitol Beach will be uh, coming up in October. And the other person we're going to hear from on the federal policy side 
is 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 our Howard Marlowe? Yeah, Howard's going to do a federal policy show on a on the ASPN network, and those two guys are going to examine the details of Fed of the federal policy, both in terms of. Uh, the economics of federal investment on the shoreline, but also the programmatic implications of those things. We had two great podcasts on ASPN, Derek Broadbank and Howard Marlowe from Washington, D.C. I think we're really going to learn a lot about the federal role over the next, you know, over the, over the coming months. When we were in D.C. for the uh, ASBPA D.C. Summit, yeah. uh, we had the pleasure of going to the Senate and, and hearing a few coastal senators speak to what they believed the federal government's roles and responsibilities were in uh, putting money on the beach. And it's it's clear that uh, within Congress, and, and I'm looking forward to a, a much more nuanced discussion here, and I, I know that Derek and Howard are going to just knock this out of the park, but uh, I believe 23 states uh, of the Union are coastal states, and uh, of that number... Uh, a good chunk of them are impacted by hurricanes. You have the entire southeast region and Gulf region. And uh, it's clear that in the wake of these storms, there exists, at least for the time being, a willingness on behalf of Congress to appropriate funds to uh, mitigate the local cost of rebuilding and yeah, reestablishing these economies. and. Uh, that is that is just the political reality of what of the of how the federal government is performing on when these storms hit. Right. They they don't they write the check. They at the end of the day they pull out the checkbook and they they pay for rebuilding. We do and and you know it's not just I think it's important for people to keep in mind when you look at federal disaster expenditures. Uh, it's the coastal expenditures are are very visible because of the dramatic nature of the events that occur. I mean, we get to sit and watch a hurricane for four days on live TV cross the Atlantic and approach the American shoreline at 125 mile an hour winds and storm surges predicted to be 13 feet. It is very dramatic. But federal disaster expenditures in, say, the heartland of the country, for farm and ranch operations that are affected by significant droughts. or uh, Those expenditures are not visible. We don't get to get on CNN and watch the ground crack and the crops die and the cows <laughs> fall over. There just no, isn't the kind of focus. But if you look it's at... The time scale. It's the time scales are different and the visibility is mm-hmm. different and uh, federal expenditures in, in disaster relief are, are is a really great topic, and you know I hope that uh, it's a topic we can get more into uh, both on our federal podcast and maybe on the local government podcast on ASPN. I think that's a great idea. I mean, it, as as I like to say, and I've said it before on this show, and I'll say it again: uh, the American shoreline is a crucible. Uh, the time scales that things change. The geology changes, the environment changes, the, co- the economic changes. It happens along the American shoreline at a rate that is uh, accelerated when you compare it to those other categories. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, we, the federal government has a massive responsibility across uh, this nation, and uh, there's, 
we we pay for a lot of things. We pay for we pay for those droughts too. <laughs> we you do. Know? We, they they we, pull the check out for those guys we, as well. We pay for the droughts. We pay for the fires in the Northwest. We pay for the management of federal lands all across the West. Uh, it's in and here's the kind of maybe to wrap this up a little bit. But what I'm always impressed by is how many times have we watched uh, an interview post hurricane? Maybe it's the, the winds have subsided, the house is in shambles, they're interviewing a homeowner, and the conversation is, are you going to stay here or are you going to leave? And even in the most crisis, the peak crisis moment, across the board, I hear people say, absolutely, we are going to stay, we are rebuilding, we're going to make it bigger and better. And there's something about the American character that I see there. We are not quitters. Americans don't give up. Uh, sometimes we, we do things that are maybe not the most sensible thing to do. But I don't. I very rarely see people say, you know what, I've just had it. But, uh, and, and we're going to leave. What I see them doing is building bigger and better and more valuable. The statistics show it. The real estate market shows it. And all of this comes together in conflict in local government policy on, on construction management, setback standards, uh, building construction standards through the NFI, the National Flood Insurance Program. There's just a whole lot that happens. A boatload. Uh, yeah, a boatload yeah. of stuff that comes out of the fact that Americans are persistent and a, a little uh, you know, persnickety when it comes to giving up their property. They're not going to do it easily, and they don't. And uh, that's why... Uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. I think so. Well, listen, everybody, uh, it's been uh, a big storm there in the Carolinas. Uh, we want to wish everybody who is impacted, uh, obviously, the very best uh, now and, and as they emerge from the storm. Um, we hope everybody has a great week. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, continuing to, to monitor this situation and uh, be sure to go to coastalnewstoday.com uh, sign up for our email newsletter uh, we are making great progress on our website and uh, getting all of our stuff put together super excited about it uh, we are of course going to continue to podcast in the meantime um, but want to wish everybody impacted by the storm the very best absolutely uh so for all you coastal practitioners out there, um, you found a home on Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. We look forward to talking to y'all and hopefully get a chance to meet as many of you as we can at the ASBPA conference in Galveston, Texas on October 30th to November 2nd. We hope to see you there. Thanks a lot, Tyler. We'll talk to you next week. All right, Pete. Adios, everybody.